Jesus left that place and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Crowds again gathered around him, and was his custom, he began to teach them. Some Pharisees came, and to test him they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God said, What God has joined together, let no one separate. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, and the disciples spoke sternly to them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly, I tell you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. This is the word of the Lord. Six hours ago, it was 11 o'clock a.m. in London and in Bristol, England. In London, there is a beautiful chapel on City Road that John Wesley had built. Remember that he and Charles were Anglican priests all of their adult life after college and seminary. But they preached, wrote hymns, sang at crossroads and marketplaces outside coal mines because a bishop had said you cannot preach in the Anglican church again until you can constrain your enthusiasm. So since the Church of England was the church, they built two places to worship. One was called a chapel and one was called the New Room, the one in Bristol. John ended up the last years of his life in his 80s living in an apartment that adjoined the church on City Road. Uh, Charles and his family lived in an apartment just a short walk from the New Room in Bristol, and he died there. These two places are very similar. Uh, at a time when the altar was usually way back against the wall and you had a lectern on one side and the pulpit on the other, uh, the Wesleys believed that everything should be center-focused and you sort of gave importance, as it were. Uh, the table was sort of on the main level. Then the liturgist was sort of second rung up, if you would. And then the pulpit was halfway between the balcony and, and the floor so that those in the balcony were as close to the preacher as were the people seated on the main floor level. Uh, neither room is nearly so large as this one, but the design was similar. So in those two places six hours ago, British Methodists were gathering at the table, the very same tables where John and Charles celebrated the sacrament nearly 300 years ago. In small churches, in great cathedrals, around the world today, in every one of the 24 time zones, as 11 o'clock comes, there are people who are celebrating the sacrament. With you, this long table. Then I open the lection, and here is all this business about divorce on Worldwide Communion Sunday. And I thought, surely our scholars from the Roman Catholic Church, the Episcopal Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the disciples could have done better for this first Sunday in October. But this is the lection from Mark's Gospel. Let's take a look. Number one, Mark says Jesus left that place and went across the Jordan. And that would have been into a territory called in biblical time Perea. Uh, Perea was just in the 
easternmost, uh, the westernmost part of Jordan on the east side of the river and was ruled over by a tetrarch named Herod Antipas. We are told immediately by Mark, Pharisees came to test him. I read six different scholars this week, and all of them said, the Pharisees are not asking a question because they're going to change their minds, depending on Jesus' answer, but because they're trying to get him into hot water as John the baptizer had been in hot water with this same tetrarch over this same issue. When John the baptizer spoke out about Herodias and Herod Antipas' marriage, Herodias was married first, remember, to Herod Antipas' brother, and then was divorced, and, and the second brother married her. Uh, all kinds of terrible things going on in the royal palace and family. Uh, John the baptizer spoke out against that, and it ended up costing him his head. So if we can get Jesus to take a stand, maybe we can get rid of him as well. Jesus is speaking into that situation. People ask you questions who already have their minds made up. My third year here, our Barton Clinton Gordy presenter was Dr. William J. A. Power, who had taught me at Perkins School of Theology, SMU. He was a Canadian Anglican who taught all of his adult lifetime after getting his Ph.D. at Perkins School of Theology, Southern Methodist University. His specialty, the Torah, or in Greek, the Pentateuch, the five scrolls. And in one of his presentations from this pulpit, he said, in talking about Genesis 2, Adam and Eve were doing fine until they stopped to talk to a snake. So what are we learning here? Don't talk to snakes. That's what he said. Don't talk to snakes. This week, somebody asked me what I thought about the latest book, in America that says God is dead. I remembered when I was in seminary, a professor at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, named Tom Altizer, wrote a book, God is Dead. In America, if you want to write a book that sells, three ideas for you. Dieting, cookbook, book about God dying. Either one of those, all three, they sell well. But that doesn't mean you and I have to read them all. When Tom Altizer wrote his book, it upset so many people in America that he and his book made the cover of Time magazine, I remember. And Methodists were really upset because Emory University is one of ours. A lot of people didn't stop and look to see that Tom Altizer did not teach in the School of Theology. You see, Stephen Hawking is not a theologian, but he's decided didn't need God to create the universe. Okay. So if scientists move into the theologian's field, uh, they should be judged as non-theologian, if you would. And Tom Altizer was teaching in the English department. Nonetheless, he wrote a book, God is Dead, sold a lot of copies, and Methodists wanted to hang him. And I remember our Dr. Albert Outler standing in chapel at Perkins and saying, why do you think so many people are so upset? Because they're afraid Tom Altizer might be right. 
If you worship regularly, if you talk to God regularly, if you listen to God regularly, you don't need to read the book. You and I made up our minds about that a long time ago, and these people sell a lot of books, but they're not interested in helping you or me. Number two. Test question. Didn't Moses say you could write a certificate and dismiss her? Well, yes, he did. It's in the book of Deuteronomy, a scroll that really appeared in the time of King Josiah. So what was going on in that period that made that scroll say you can issue a certificate of divorce and dismiss her? It came down to the practice before Deuteronomy was written, and that was that it was a man's world entirely, that 98% or so of the people could not read nor write, so they had to pay very close attention to what was said and heard, and they'd come to understand that one might say something in anger, I hate you, and not really mean it, or in passion, I love you, and not really mean it the next morning. But if you said it three times, we're going to take you seriously. Now, that was still understood in Jesus' time. When some were leaving Jesus, he asked, Will all of you also leave me? Simon Peter said, well, they may all leave you, but not me, not I. I will be there. And Jesus said, Simon, you don't know what you're talking about. Before the rooster crows to start tomorrow, you will deny me three times. No, I won't. Oh, yes, you will. And surely enough, they were out at the Mount of Olives, and the enemy came, and Jesus was arrested and taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, Peter following along at a safe distance. And when he got near the house, a maid said, You're dressed like a Galilean. I think you were with him. No, I wasn't, he said. A few minutes later, someone said, Didn't I see you with that Galilean this week? No, you didn't see me. And when a third one asked him, Didn't you come into the city with him? No, I never knew him, he said. And the rooster crowed. And Jesus was led out, and their eyes met, remember, three times. Not once in a fit of anger, not once in a moment of passion, three times. So, in John's gospel, we have an occasion after the resurrection of Jesus... when Simon Peter has said, I'm getting out of Jerusalem, I'm going fishing... Well, we're going with you, Simon. And they went back up to the lake. And as they were fishing, they saw someone on the shore fixing breakfast and knew it was the Lord. And when Jesus motioned to Simon off to one side, he asked him, Simon, do you have agape for me? I have filios for you. Simon, do you have agape for me? I have filios for you. Simon, 
do you really have filios for me? Lord, you know everything. You knew me before. You must know me now. I do have filios for you. You know what he's asking him? Simon, do you have agape for me? This is not a feeling. This is a decision of the mind. Will you put yourself out for me? I'll be your friend. Do you have agape for me? Will you put yourself out for me, Simon? I'll be your friend. Will you really be my friend? I will. Okay. Feed my sheep. How many times did he ask him? Three. Three times. In the time of Deuteronomy, it was a man's world. And all a man had to say to the wife was, this is the third day you burned the bread. I divorce you. I divorce you. I divorce you, and she had to pack up and get out. And a single woman with no man to fend for her was absolutely helpless. A woman out by herself was assumed to be a prostitute and fair game for anybody and everybody. So she would have to go over the nearest sand dune to a watering hole and take up with somebody else, only to have the husband decide... Four or five hours later, well, you know, she did some things fairly well, go riding after her, blood was spilled all over the desert. So Deuteronomy says, look, this three times business has got to go. Write it out and hand it to her so she can begin her life again. Hand it to her. But he did this, Jesus said, because your heart was hard. What God had in mind, and this is number three, is that one man would marry one woman, she, him, and they would be bound together for the rest of their lives. That's what God had in mind. Doesn't mean divorce is an unpardonable sin. There are lots of things God had in mind that we didn't get done. Last year, one of my former professors died, Dr. Frederick Carney. He lived to be 84. He taught moral theology in seminary. That always seemed a strange name to me. Did that mean all other theology was immoral? You know. We had a course in practical theology, which had to do with how do you do communion, how do you do a wedding, how do you do a funeral, how do you administer a church, which I thought must mean all other theology is impractical, you know. Anyway, it was called moral theology, and it meant Dr. Carney taught right from wrong. How does one know right from wrong? How does one do the ethical thing? And I remember in one of his classes, he kept demanding that we go through the Ten Commandments one by one and put the negative statements into positive language. Okay. What that means is, thou shalt not kill. How do you put that in positive language? And Dr. Carney wanted you to come up with something like this. Thou shalt love and cherish life. Love and cherish life. Not only yours, but the life of the other as well. 
Thou shalt not steal. And he wanted you to come to some answer like this. Thou shalt honor ownership. That our communities get along better when we honor the other's ownership. Of a house, a car, a wife, a husband. We honor. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt love and honor truth. Love and honor truth. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Positively stated is, you should honor your commitments. I stood on a rainy night, tornado warnings out, thunder, hail, and lightning, and said to Gail, shopping days are over for me. I've had time to date tall ones and short ones and round ones and thin ones. I want you. And she said, I'm ready to quit shopping myself. <laughs> and as little as we had to offer the other, we said we would offer it the rest of our lives. That's what we said. And that's what God had in mind, I believe. That one honors one's commitments. If you enjoy them when they're young and pretty and firm, when they get older, you're supposed to hang in there together. <laughs> together. Every time one of us has a checkup now and we get good results, we hug and say, well, we stepped over that snake one more time. Little things so far crop up all the time, but we've stepped over that big snake so far. Thou shalt honor commitments. Commitments. Let's move to number four. They were bringing little children to him, and the disciples rebuked them. Get those kids out of here. And the only time in Mark's gospel that he speaks of Jesus as being indignant, he can't believe what he's hearing. Have they not heard his reaction to little children before? And so he says again, if any of you do not receive the kingdom of God like a child, you cannot enter. Edward Schweitzer says in his commentary, in Jesus' day, under the Roman Empire, they had what is known as paterfamilia. The father owned the family. The father owned the family. Children were property. Schweitzer says the only proper posture for a child was like that of a beggar. That of a beggar. May I have something to eat? May I have something to drink? In the communion service, one of my classes years ago debated, do we always hold our hands to receive communion? What about the words take and eat? Take and drink. I think what's being said is what Dr. Tankersley read to us a few minutes ago, I knock at the door 
if you will open the door, I will come in. So we come and kneel to receive, but God's grace, in a sense, must be taken. Will you extend the hand? Extend the hand? Dr. Brandon Scott reminds us in his latest book that the kingdom, re-imaging the kingdom of God, is remembering that Jesus most often called God Abba. I told you I was out at the Zara campus having lunch about three years ago. There was a Jewish man on either side of me, and one sort of leaned over while we were eating our salads and said to the other, do you hear that story about the kid running through the house saying, Abba, Abba? I didn't hear the rest of the story. I didn't realize this word is still used among Jewish families. Abba means Papa, Daddy. It's a term of endearment, affection. Jesus called God Abba, Abba, and then he told us what this heavenly Abba is like, like a man who had two sons. One of them came to him one day and said, I wish you were dead and I had my inheritance now. And the father, who realized that if he gave up part of his property, he and the whole family became vulnerable, he did it anyway. That son wasted everything. Good Jewish boy ended up in a pig pen eating with the hogs decided to go home, never thinking he could be a son again. Maybe he could work on the farm of his father. The father saw him coming. Dr. Brandon Scott said, remember, Israel is not in Europe, it's in Asia. Asian fathers did not run, but Abba, Abba runs, throws his arms around this young man. Slaves went barefoot. He said, bring shoes, put my ring on his hand, kill the fattest calf, play music, roast the animal. We're having a party. My son who was dead is alive. He's home again. The elder son who had been there always, keeping the farm going, heard the music, heard the dancing, smelled the barbecue, would not come in. That's disrespectful of the father in Asia. Disrespectful. What does the father do? He goes out to the field and says to him in Greek, My dear child, come to the party. Come to the party. Abba does not believe you've committed any sin. He is not willing to forgive. If you seek newness of life and are willing to walk in his ways all the days of your life, come to the party. 